Hello, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Bueno. I'm a therapist in Chicago, and I own a group practice called Head Heart Therapy. And the idea behind this podcast was I have really amazing conversations with my friends, and a lot of my friends are therapists and or in recovery and or spiritual healers, and they're all doing some super amazing work. Whenever we talk, I feel really filled and really excited and energized, and I think that the information that we talk about is, I guess, not something that a lot of people talk about. When I did my first podcast interview on Andrea Klunder's The Creative Imposter, the feedback that I got was so overwhelmingly positive and a lot of people were like, oh my gosh, so vulnerable and you know, some of the things you said just resonated so much and I was just thinking, well, my friends and I talk like this all the time. So y'all just need to like sit on the couch with us and have a great time. So this is my way of trying to make that happen. My first guest, her name is Audra Kurth, and she is a licensed clinical professional counselor. I think that's what LCPC stands for. And a certified alcohol drug counselor. And she works at a practice called Chicago Mindful Psychotherapy. Audra and I have known each other, I think probably like maybe about five years now. She is a super special person in my life. She is one of my soul sisters and... The thing that really sold me on Audra, in 2014, we both lost our dads. And it's interesting because my parents both died and it was nine months apart when my parents died and her dad died like right in the middle in between when my parents died. And, you know, grief is such a, an overwhelming emotion and something that's so incredibly personal and you know, having a parent die, it's like, you don't know really who to talk to. People get really freaked out at that thought. And after her dad died, I reached out. I can't can't even tell you what I said to her, but she was like, let's just hang out and have a grief group of two. And I was like, fuck yes, that sounds exactly like what I need to do. And there were a couple times where we'd go out to dinner. One time we met in Wells Park because we wanted to do cartwheels. So... (laughs) We had our little grief group of two. And ever since that happened back in in 2014, our relationship has just grown and she's just a really, really special person to me. And so that's why I wanted her to be number one on this podcast because we always have amazing conversations together. And I knew that the information that, that we would talk about together might be healing for people, might be interesting. So I do hope you enjoy our interview with Audra, the reluctant sacred spiritual healer. Hello, Audra. How are you? I'm good, friend. How are you? I am excellent. So why don't you tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do? I am a licensed clinical professional counselor. That's LCPC in the state of Illinois. So essentially, I have my master's degree in counseling psychology, and I'm licensed. I also have my CADC, which is Certified Alcohol and Drug Abuse Counselor 
certification, which means I specialize in addiction. So I'm a therapist in Chicago. I work at a mindfulness-based practice and I do individual therapy and I do some DBT groups. That's dialectical behavioral therapy. Man, I feel like I'm swinging with all the uh, letters right off the bat. (laughs) That's how we roll. That's how it is. Mm -hmm. So I do all of those things. Primarily, I see people for individual therapy. A lot of people that I see are dealing with addiction or family members of people who are dealing with addiction. But I also have a whole lot of other people who are just struggling with anxiety and depression and relationship issues and all the other lovely things that bring people to therapy. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And for people who might be listening, Audra is one of my very, very dearest friends. And do you want to tell the story of how we met? Sure. So I was working at a substance abuse treatment center and Sarah came in to network and market herself essentially. And she walked into the room and she had a purple mohawk and I also had a purple mohawk and we were like, let's be friends. (laughs) And it worked. And it worked. worked. And they lived happily forever after. Mm -hmm. My picture us frolicking was our purple mohawks. Yes. And we do frolic. So Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let that stand for the record. Yeah, yeah. So I asked Audra to be my first interview because I know that Audra is a person who is just as dedicated to her own personal work as she is to helping clients. And because she's my awesome friend, I knew we'd have a lot of great conversations to have with this. So that's why I've asked you. So thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, it's an honor slash makes me want to barf a little bit. So I'm glad, glad we're doing this. It's yes. just like doing your own work. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's I perfect. It. I love it and I want to barf. Perfect. So my dear Audra, tell me the story of how you decided to become a therapist. All right. So it's kind of funny because I feel like I ended up in a lot of places in my professional career accidentally. So I grew up, my father was a evangelical Pentecostal preacher. So I grew up in a pretty conservative Christian home, which is interesting because it was full of love and also very strict. And also there's this legacy of helping others, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a pretty crucial, interesting part of my work currently of contending with that background, but we can get into that later. Anyway, so I grew up with being around a lot of people, helping a lot of people, helping relationship, sense of community. So it was kind of instilled in me and I was always drawn to wanting to work with people. When I was really young, I was like, I want to be a doctor. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I got good grades. I'm a perfectionist. So I was all like, I'm going to get my PhD or I'm going to go get my MD and I'm going to go heal the sick. And just like Jesus. Oh yeah, girl. Just... And so, but then I realized I like literally faint at the sight of blood and even like talking about it and thinking about it is really (laughs) problematic for me. So it's like, well, that's not really going to work. Plus like the idea of majoring in biology or chemistry, like I think I could have done it. I just didn't really want to. So I was like, I don't know what to do now. That was, this is probably like senior in high school ish time. Mm. 
and I'm applying to college. So at the time I was taking like, I think like a sociology, probably light psychology class. And I was like, this is pretty cool and interesting. And my mom's like, why don't, I think my mom was the one who was like, why don't you major in it? So I was like, okay. Hmm. So I did. And then I remember my very first class and I remember the book, there was a book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And huh. it was all about the difference between like humans and other animals and how we essentially create problems in our bodies because of stress. Oh, and I yeah. was like, Oh my gosh, this is fascinating. Um, and I was hooked. Right. And like how the mm-hmm. mind worked and all that stuff. So that was how I ended up with that. And it was funny too, because then like, I didn't really understand going to graduate school. Like I knew it had to happen, but I didn't know how to prepare for that. And I like picked a graduate school. Cause I was like, Oh, I don't know where to go. And I don't want to take the GRE, which I ended up taking anyway. And I don't really, want to be too far away from home, which is pretty mm-hmm. ironic now. Right. So I ended up in graduate school in, at Valparaiso. And I actually really liked a lot of my professors and I got some really good experience there. But like reflecting back, I was like, I have no idea what I was doing. I just sort of ended up there. And the same kind of thing there. So I was like, I want to work with women and I want to like maybe do domestic violence stuff. And I had this whole thing. And then you get into your internships and I had this really wonderful supervisor and she was like, what do you not want to do? And I was like, uh, oh, addiction. Like, I, I don't think I can handle that. Oh, wow. I was, right? I was like, yeah. I don't think I can handle that. Like watching people just like struggle and fail and relapse. And it just seems so heartbreaking. And she was like, well, Audra, you need to understand that relapse is a part of all change process. Mm. And so if you've seen a woman who's like trying to leave a domestic violence situation, you know, the averages, they go back seven times before they actually leave and people with suppression, it comes around again, or people engage in problematic behaviors again. So if you can't handle the ups and downs of the change process, then you're not in the right business. And I was like, whoa, you know, so it was a huge moment. And so she's like, I think you should go check out our addictions program. Wow. So I did it and I loved it. And I was like, oh my God, I love these people. I love these stories. I love this work. Like immediately I had that, like, this is what I want to do. So that was how I ended up with the addiction stuff. But it's funny because I left. And again, same thing. I just, I moved to Chicago because I had friends here and I wanted to get out of small town America. And I applied for jobs and I did crisis work. I did crisis intervention for six years and it was really amazing. So I ended up there. It wasn't like I didn't have a specialty in that I had done some like crisis line stuff in college and mm-hmm. whatever. And And it was cool. And so, of course, in crisis work, you get tons of substance abuse comes through that situation. And it was cool because I got to, like, get the whole gamut of mental health. You know, like I was going into SROs, doing assessments on people. I'm, like, in the emergency room doing assessments on people that the police have brought in. You know, if anything happened in the agency, they would, like, page me and I would come running to, like, deal with stuff, which was interesting. So it was cool. I'm really appreciative for that experience. So I got lots lots of general assessment and understanding of the whole wide world of mental health and the mental health system, which I think is really, was very eye opening for me and highly important. So I did all that for six years, which is probably too long, but you know how it is with agency work. I don't know if people out there know how it is with agency work. You get sucked in, you feel like I'm doing the good work and you kind of have that chip on your shoulder and I'm in the trenches doing the stuff, but you know, it's ultimately exhausting. So I don't know if I was like full on burnout. There was a lot of changes at the agency and it was just time. So I left and I was like, I'm, I want this addiction thing. I would kind of get all the like more substance abuse prevalent cases that came through anyway. Mm -hmm. I was like, I really want to go. So I left and I went to Hazelden and 
at the same time, I started doing private practice. And so I did that for like a year and a half. And once again, you know, this seems to be a theme. I was like working six days a week and I was like, I can't keep up this pace. So I made the leap into private practice and I love it. Yay. So that was a really long-winded answer to that short question. No, I love it. It's perfect. So I accidentally fell into all this stuff backwards. You know, like I got this job because I just needed a job when I moved to Chicago. Mm -hmm. Right. And I did addictions because I didn't want to do addictions and I loved it. And even same with the, like when I started doing private practice and the mindfulness stuff, my boss was like, well, she had been my boss at the mental health agency. And then she left and started doing private practice. And she was like, I have this vision. I want to like have like a private practice and I want it to be mindfulness based. And I'm sort of like, oh, I feel like you kind of talked about that. Like what's mindfulness? And she was like, yeah, it's really important. And her philosophy and now our group's philosophy is like mindfulness is not just this tool that you teach people Mm -hmm. um, in therapy. Like it is a way of being, it is a lifestyle and we will practice what we preach. And so it was great because she was like, Hey, come to this mindfulness meditation workshop. Mm, Is that the Turgar one? Well, Amy from Turgar Mm -hmm. and Georgia ran it together. So it was a combination of that. And I feel like a lot of it was based on like Sharon Salzberg's stuff and Turgar stuff was kind of like, the blend. So it was like a full thing. And it was like, Oh, okay. This is meditation, which was all brand new to me. I'm like, all right, this is cool. So I was like, yeah, sure. I'll start doing this. Right. So it was kind of like, Hey, you have to do this in order to work here. And I was like, Oh, okay. And then now it's been this like revolutionary important life-changing thing for me. So once again, Audra falling into all of these ways of being. Yeah. And since you talk about, you know, mindfulness as a lifestyle, can you maybe explain a little bit what that looks like for you and maybe also some things that you suggest for your clients? Sure. Wow. That's a big question. Yeah. Yeah. For me, mindfulness is being woke, like wake up, (laughs) right? Like wake up to the sensations in your body, wake up to your thought process, wake up to how all of that influences your behavior, wake up to the experience of people around you in the world around you, right? Mm -hmm. And be present with all of it, you know, and they talk about mindfulness being like a, there's two wings of the bird of it. And one half is like attention and noticing and the other half is compassion. Mm -hmm. So it's not just, it's waking up, but like holding everything with some like gentleness, kindness, curiosity, and compassion. So it's trying to live life that way, right? And it happens formally and informally. So formally is like the full-on sitting down with yourself with formal meditation practices, and there's a million of those. And then also the rest of it is like trying to be as fully present as possible with the rest of it, like not shying away from hard things and fully appreciating and noticing all of the beautiful, wonderful things and everything in between. It also is like how I attempt to show up in the room with a client of like, can I be fully present to everything that they're bringing in and all the garbage that I'm bringing in? Mm-hmm and be willing to like name it and talk about it and deal with it. So I guess that's my maybe smallest nutshell version of that. There's a lot of complexities to all of that, but. Right. But I like the idea of woke, you know, I I feel like in society we have, I guess, kind of awoken to the idea that authenticity is really important. But Mm -hmm. I think authenticity can also be used as a weapon. And like the term woke, 
I feel like is thrown around so flippantly and also authenticity is too, right? Because I mean, I know you and I are on the same political spectrum and knowing that Donald Trump is a, you know, raving narcissist. And when people (laughs) say, oh, he's so authentic because he calls it like it is, like, that's not authenticity. That's narcissism and a lack of couth. So nice word. Oh, thanks. So I'm not sure you know, your thoughts on how you cultivate, and this is another big question, like how you cultivate for yourself that, you know, in Buddhism, the idea of clear seeing, right? So how do you know when you're tapping into that authentic woke part of yourself versus when maybe an imposter tries to show up? Yeah, that is a big question, but quick answers to that are one, like do your own work, right? So I guess let's start with like formal meditation practice. Mm -hmm. That's really hard, right? And I started with all the mindfulness stuff maybe like four years ago now, four or five years ago now is when that all would have started, right? And it has been incredibly challenging for me to maintain like a daily consistent practice. I Mm. go in and out and in and out and in and out and wrestle with it, right? And so eventually I have an accountability partner now, Amy, who is the Turner lady who is also in our practice, who's amazing. And I are meditation partners, right? And so, and it partners is a strong word, but we text each other every day. I did my 20 minutes. This is what I'm doing it on, or I want to do this. And then we also have space to sort of process what's going on in our experiences. And that has been enormously helpful for me. So anyway, back to being woke and authentic. I mean, the more you sit with yourself, the more you learn and you can't hide from that shit. So when you sit, you notice all of your shit and you have to reckon with it and deal with it, right? And so I feel like that feeds authenticity of like when you know your patterns, then you can name them really quickly and you become aware of them. Oh, this is my perfectionist showing up or this is my like teacher self showing up because I want to escape being vulnerable right now, or this is my angry teenager stomping her feet, you know, that, that kind of stuff happens with practice and then also doing therapy, right? Like your own therapy, like seeing a therapist and group therapy has been a new thing in my world or group processing has been a new thing. And as I feel like really cracked things open, I feel like it's been maybe more powerful than some of my individual work. Like when I think back to like group experiences that I've had, it's been pretty, pretty incredible. Not Mm -hmm. to say that individual work, it's (laughs) the individual therapist is being like, group is way better. Yeah, right. But I think, I mean, there's something to be said for, to pull back, you know, when we do groups with clients, we know that the the empathy and the connection and all of that experience is so much more powerful for them than anything that we could say. So of course, you know, when we have group experiences, it's going to be profound if you're digging in and doing your shit. Totally. So I feel like the whole like getting woke business is like, when you do your own work, then like you can't not notice it walking around in your life, you know, and which is the beautiful curse of awareness. Like sometimes I'm so mad at it. Like I hate awareness. Like I don't want to know this right now. I don't want to have to do the work of dealing with this. Right. And I think that's the same thing with like therapy. You can't unknow something. Right. Yep. I've always said that to clients going through treatment, like you're getting this education and you will never unknow this. And so you will never not be uncomfortable by your quote unquote bad behavior anymore because you can't, you can't close your mind to it. Right. Which is, you know, the best worst. I have other thoughts about the whole, because you brought up the authenticity thing and I feel like that's really important. Like it's this thing that like eats at me a little bit, which we have talked to some degree about, but uh, let me unpack a little bit more. Ugh like saying that word unpack, it feels so therapisty. 
anyway, <laughs> guess what? You're a therapist, by I the way. Know, I know. So in being part of a mindfulness practice and also doing DBT and ACT, all that's like third wave psychology, which is all very Buddhist thinking. Mm-hmm. Acceptance and commitment therapy. Yes. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You get exposed to these Buddhist ideas like no self, mm-hmm. right? And the happiness trap. And I feel like there's kind of been this this trend of like authenticity and finding your authentic self and finding your true voice and standing in your truth, which on a very basic level, I totally believe in. Mm-hmm. But I also believe that rigidly attaching to idea of self, like self is so fluid and it mm-hmm. changes so much. And I feel like authentic true self is kind of taken over the like good enough narrative. And I feel like people, like you were saying as a weapon against themselves, like, you know, like I follow all this stuff on like social media and these like empowering things and therapist things and whatever. And it feels like to me, there's this whole, like, we got to stop body shaming ourselves and, you know, we got to start using our voices and taking up space and all of those kinds of things, which I agree with, but there's this like very sneaky element of like, am I standing in my truth? Am I being my authentic self and people beating themselves up? And it kind of is this new way of chasing being enough and good and right. And I was like, oh, like that's not it, you know? And so it's hard for me because I feel like there's so much good messaging in that, but I also feel like there's this like edge of the be more, be enough. Like I can't tell you how many clients roll in, like when I, you know, I'll be like, hey, maybe you should read the gifts of imperfection or radical acceptance or self-compassion. And then they come in and they're like, I haven't read this and I'm failing at this or I'm reading this book or I want to do this or I got to do this stuff. And like, it just becomes like being authentic suddenly becomes a new measure of that. And it's a problem. Yeah, no, that is a really good point. And I had a client once, I mean, she was reading all the self-help books and she came in one day and she's like, why aren't they working? Like, why doesn't this work for me? And I feel like some of the books and like the ones that you mentioned, like gifts of imperfection and radical acceptance, I think those are different, but some of the like more pop psychology self-help books, like... I don't know. There's, there's one I'm thinking of, but I probably shouldn't say the name of it, but it's basically like, you can be whatever you want to be and you can do whatever you want to do, but you know what? Not everybody can. And that's not because they're not capable, but whatever their circumstances in their life, they may not be able to get to, you know, be a CEO of a trillion dollar company. I don't think everyone has that capacity and it's bullshit to try to sell this idea and going back to the woke thing. Like, is there a place where you're going to be able to be 100% authentic all the time and standing in your truth? Probably not. Well, and like, what does that mean? Cause it literally changes moment to moment to moment. Like I could be totally overcome with like a deep sense of insecurity, right? Of like, oh my God, like even like right now we're doing this interview and I'm like, I can switch from moment to moment where I'm feeling like, wow, that's like really useful. And I'm so glad I'm saying these things and that sounds really <laughs> yeah. great. And then there's this other part where I'm like, oh my God, you're talking too much about nothing or this is terrible or whatever. So am I secure or am I insecure? Am I confident or not? And I feel like people quickly are going to be like, no, Audra, your truth is, is that you have things to offer and take up space. But the truth is, is that I'm also insecure too. I'm both, which is, you know, that is the essence of dialectics is like sort of containing a seemingly opposing truth at the same time. Or as I like to think about it is like getting comfortable with the fact that we're all hypocritical and all of life is (laughs) so deal with it. And I guess maybe that's like that moment to moment to moment of changing and 
that's why I kind of like the notion of compassion a little bit more is like, all of this is going to happen. And can I just contain and compassionately be with all of the tumbling through all of the ways of being that will show up? Right. Yeah. Well, and this kind of moves to one of the questions that I wanted to ask about, you know, how you manage your own authenticity and and vulnerability in terms of of work and how that may or may not be different when you show up in real life. You know, we've certainly talked about your relationship with Phil, your husband, and how things, you know, that happen in group then show up with him and all of that. So can you talk a little bit about that authenticity, vulnerability, I guess? As a therapist? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. This one's like hard. Cause I feel like I want to go to like the whole, like the dialectics of thing, because I do want to show up with people. And I believe that like, we are having a genuine relationship and like, you know, people are wounded in relationships. So people heal in relationship. Right. Agreed. And everybody can feel fakeness or like when you take too much distance, you know, people can feel that when you're keeping up a wall or distance. And also I can't like, you know, merge and mesh with people either. So trying to find that middle ground of that closeness. So I do a lot of using my own reaction to people in real time, which I think is vulnerable and revealing of myself and appropriate, right? So right. You know, someone will say something and I'm like, you know, I'll be like, pause. That's one of my favorite things. I'm like, pause, hold on, stop, time mm-hmm. out. You know, mm-hmm. like, you know, like what's happening in your body? Like my chest is like so tight right now, yes. or I feel like I'm going to vomit or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'll, you know, use my own reaction to try to help them get into theirs, which I feel like is very authentic. Yes. You know, I get teary eyed with clients yeah. frequently, you know, and I've cried with clients too. I mean, that, that one doesn't happen as often. I feel like I, I get teary eyed frequently, you know, yeah. cause like the body feels stuff and it resonates in that whole like mirror neurons and empathy. Like it's going to happen. And I think it's really useful. So that is probably one of the biggest ways. And I, and I don't, I, I can't hide my facial expressions right. very well. So there's also a lot of like, I'll be listening, you know, and whatever. And I'll be like, what is with your face? Like, hey. your face I'm like, oh, shit. Okay. Here's what I'm thinking. Right. Mm-hmm. And like self-disclosure, I, I try to use, you know, like anything appropriately sparingly, like if mm-hmm. I think if it's in their own best interest and it's going to help them, I might share something about myself. And mm-hmm. there's also this kind of, easing in and easing out of the therapy space with people, Mm -hmm. the small talk sort of stuff. You know, I know some of quote authentic Audra leaks in and out of the entering and exiting, you know, some of that Mm -hmm. space. Mm -hmm. So that's there. And the other thing that the other issue that's in all of us that I don't quite know how to reconcile is the idea of loving clients. Oh yeah. And I've had a lot of conversations with my colleagues about this recently and Mm. it's a scary word to say. Like, I feel like there's this, like, you're not supposed to love your clients and you're sure not supposed to say, I love you too clients. Right. And it just feels like old kind of old school ideas about like holding boundaries, which I also believe in too. Right. And like the way that I love them is limited to the space that we're in. You know, Mm -hmm. we see them an hour a week, sometimes maybe more. right? Right. So there's an artificialness to the love, mm-hmm. even if it's really authentic, right? Or uh, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe artificialness isn't the right word, but maybe limits. It has limits, yeah. even though sometimes it feels very boundless within me. Like I love my clients. It's like a joke around the office, you know, like if we're ever consulting, like I'm immediately like, so this client, I love them. I love him. I love her. You know, Yes. <laughs> like, I'm always the one who's like, I love, 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 love. Like I love 
them, you know, and I like love other people's clients. Like just like they're in the lobby waiting to see somebody else. And we have these like mini interactions and I'm like, Oh my God, I love her. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of one of my gifts as a therapist is that I love very easily. Yes. And I mean it. That's a hard thing for some of my clients to like trust and accept. Right. Mm. Yes. But I also don't use that word ever with anybody. I've only once one time with one client. Really? Mm-hmm. We were terminating. It was, it was a beautiful relationship and we were terminating and we had talked it through and, and we hugged goodbye and he said, I love you. Or maybe like, you know, I love you. And I was like, I love you too, you know, and it was, it was beautiful. And it was like yeah. the first time and I was like, Oh my God, I uttered the words to a client. Yeah. Like, was I allowed to do that? Going to therapist jail. Right. <laughs> well, I, I got a call last night from a therapist in San Francisco and I never pick up the phone. I, I, I don't know who I assumed it was. And I picked up the phone and she's like, Oh, Hey, I am seeing, you know, ex old client of yours. And I was just like, Oh my God, I love X. How's she doing? And after I was talking more with the therapist and, you know, she was just kind of asking about the history of this client and, you know, what would be helpful in her work moving forward. And she's like, Oh my God, where are you from? Because most therapists do not talk to me like this. You're so authentic and you're so straight to the point. And, <laughs> and she was like, so appreciative of the the honesty and the realness. And I think we do love our clients and it would be such a disservice to us and the clients if we didn't recognize that, you know, Mm -hmm. and express it in appropriate ways. I've been in that situation a number of times where a client will say, I love you. And I mean, when I know that I feel it, I say it back. Of course, I love you too. And you know, this relationship is very important to me and you help me as much as you think I help you, you know? It is a two-way street. And I don't think that our clients really understand what that's like to really be honored to be a witness for someone and to also be changed by them without them even knowing that they're doing it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's an awesome job. I know. I love it. Mm -hmm. Same. As I was preparing for this. There's this book that I read called Mindful Therapy by a guy named Thomas Bien. Yes. I haven't finished it yet. He talks about this. He talks about the idea of like, of course, and this gets into the whole like doing attachment therapy, but he's like, we penetrate their psyches and they penetrate ours. And mm-hmm. if, like, if we're in like deep attached relationship with people, of course, we're going to think about them outside of session. And right. this is all the caveat that you're not like obsessing about them and having these fantastical, intense fantasy relationships with them. But it's weird where I'm like, well, of course, like this thing reminds me of this client and I would think about it. Or like after Mm -hmm. a session when there's these things, like I would mull it over, like he's like, of course you do. And I think that's Mm -hmm. important. Right. And he also talks about this idea that like, you know, we kind of hold, we hold this sense of self and completeness for them until they're ready to have that for themselves, which is a big burden. And he also talks about being a healer guru and like that stuff is like awesome slash like I read this book and I would lit- I literally threw it on the floor a couple of times <laughs> and I read it and I was like I can't handle hearing this from you Thomas so funny so I don't know if you want to segue into that if you feel like we covered all the stuff but that's it all sort of connects for me 
Yeah. So move into that then, because, you know, the name of the podcast is Conversations with a Wounded Healer. And Mm -hmm. so we've danced around it, but haven't like really, I guess, driven it home straight to the point. But so if you think about that term for yourself, wounded healer, how does that apply to you? So definitely a couple different branches on this thought. I have like a strong negative reaction to the word wounded healer because of course we all are. We're human beings. Mm -hmm. So all of us are wounded, right? We all have different wounds from lots of different things. Like nobody comes out unscathed out of anything, right? Right. And it bothers me because wounded feels like active. Mm. Like I have an active gaping wound and and then I'm going to go help other people who are also wounded. And that seems inappropriate. Right. Right. Yeah. So then I'm like, well, maybe it's like scarred healer. Mm. And I feel much more like I'm a scarred healer because scars means that the tissue has repaired itself, that the organism has repaired itself and there's marks Mm. and I know them. And I like that idea better. That's not to say like, I don't have wounds or I don't get wounded or that it's like, you know, whatever, like the work's never done. right? Right. You keep doing the process and you keep revisiting, but this has been laid to rest. Like I've done this and I've let this go. And of course I can pick it up or of course, developmentally down the road, I might revisit this with a new lens, whatever. But I feel like sometimes there's this need to identify with our pathology Mm. or our need to over-identify with clients' pathology and Mm -hmm. like live in that space and pick at that space and wallow in that space. And I don't like it. Yeah. And I think it's important being like actively wounded and sharing space with somebody when you have this, you know, great burden of holding so much burden slash privilege of holding all this stuff for them. Like that's, that's dangerous, yo. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've certainly worked with other therapists, whether they be colleagues or people as my clients and just thinking like, wow, you, the burden that you're carrying right now is so great. How are you possibly carrying somebody else's? Mm -hmm. And that's tough. Right. It's funny because I feel like we all talk about it as therapists, but does anybody actually say, you know what? I can't carry this for you right now. Or you know what? I'm burned out. I need to do this. Right. I also feel like that ties in with the whole thing of we all say, you know, not everybody's a good fit. Yeah. Have you ever like with a client been like, I'm not a good fit for you and referred him to somebody else? I have. (laughs) I have. Yeah. I haven't. There was one person that I'm like, I think I probably should have and I didn't. And there's, well, that's not entirely true. I feel like sometimes things have emerged and I'm like, dude, this is outside my scope. I think you need something different, Mm -hmm. but fit full on just like Mm -hmm. I can handle what you're bringing, but we're not a good fit. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if I've done that. Yeah. Only one. There was one time where the issue is definitely out of my scope. And also the reason that this person was seeking therapy for me, it was very clear that the motives were more about sexuality than anything else. But then there was one client where it was like, there's no chemistry here, which like sounds kind of silly, right? Cause we're not dating, but if there's mm-hmm. no spark in the relationship of the therapeutic relationship, then you're going to, you're going to run out of stuff to talk about. Right. And it's not going to feel like you're getting anywhere. Totally. So I know that was like a weird side digression, but it's like, a thing no, I, love it. like I don't feel like anybody like talks about that idea of like, are we actually a good fit and like kind of giving mm-hmm. that up. And I'm particularly sensitive to this because I do DBT. And so I see lots of folks with borderline personality disorder. Mm-hmm. I feel like 
people only do that of like, it's not a good fit if the therapist doesn't want to deal with that person's presentation, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah. so I'm like, fuck you. That's a cop out. And ultimately it is a good thing because if you don't want to deal with whatever this person brings to the table, fine. But like, it just feel like it's so sometimes there's this attitude of like shaming, you know, that can happen mm-hmm. in addiction or just regular whatever of like, oh, they just, they weren't ready yet or right. they need a higher level of care. I, you know, blah, 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 blah. And like they blame the client yeah. for their stuff instead of just being like, yeah, I can't do this. Right. Cause in real harm reduction work, it's not the client's resistance. It's this is where the client is right now. And we have to transform and help them with where they are instead of mm-hmm. wanting to fit them to where we are. Totally. That's one of the defining principles of DBT is the client doesn't fail. Mm-hmm. Like the therapist fails the client essentially, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I was like, Oh damn, that was a hard truth. To yeah. Like, like first learned all of that, but like, it makes a lot of sense. Right. Yeah. Oh, so like with the wounded healer part. So that, that's one thing where I'm like over identifying with the wound is a problem. I think ongoing work is absolutely important. And I think, you know, our wounds help us relate better to people. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is a really hard dialectic of like, you don't, need to go through the same experience as your clients in order to help them. Right. And it helps sometimes to have been like, oh yeah, I get that. I understand that process of change or (laughs) I understand what I'm asking you to do because I've done it myself. Right. Right. That is important. And that is kind of challenging. And the other part of that phrase, wounded healer is the word healer, which carries a lot of stuff, you know, so like uh, circling back, circling back (laughs) to my family. I've had to reckon with that, you know, like I, in late teens was able to be like, this is not at all what I want, like these religious beliefs and values and system. And so I chose to go my own path with that. Right. And so like most people, when you're trying to get out of a situation, you swing from one pendulum to the Mm -hmm. one side to the other. Right. And so I've put a lot of distance between myself and my family's identity as Christians, right. Yeah. Christians. I don't believe Christian ideology. And I do believe a lot of Buddhist stuff, which is like uncomfortably hard for me to admit out loud in a public forum. Here we go. Talk Mm -hmm. about vulnerability, but I'm coming to this place of like trying to reconcile with like who my family was and accepting all of that. Right. And Mm -hmm. my father's grandfather was a preacher and my brother is a preacher and my mom just got ordained. And so there's this whole like legacy of like spiritual healers And I'm a part of that and probably part of why I'm good in certain ways of occupying this space with people and easily loving people is from that. I'm going to get, I'm going to cry. Like Mm. that's what my dad was really good at. He loved people very easily. He was much kinder than I am, (laughs) (laughs) you know? So it's really hard for me to accept and allow that, right. Because I've had to put so much distance and I've had, I'm doing this work now of trying to sort out what was theirs and leaving that, but like, what can I take from it? And what is that of mine? Right. And I know this goes, this goes back to the Thomas BN guy where he talks about this legacy of like, we're not just a legacy of scientists, but also of philosophers and healers and gurus Mm -hmm. and that this is a sacred thing. And, you know, we need to embrace all of that, all of what we're doing with people. You know, when we talk about the transformative work of therapy. And you are a sacred spiritual healer. It just is in a different form than your family. 
Right. <laughs> I had like a like, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Talk about barf, right? Right. Letting those words settle. Like my whole body's like, whoa, right. rigid yeah. against that, right? Yeah. So that's like part of where I am right now. And, you know, it's funny, ironic, maybe the word. I don't know. Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? <laughs> Talking about wounded healer, these are my wounds and my legacy, and it's all at the same time, right? Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, girl. Do, doing the Ooh, work. Girl. Doing we the get work. deep. Trying to do the work. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Dipping my toe in and running away. Yeah. But you you do do it. You And you show up fully. I'm not going to say like Thank you. fully in your truth, but you show up fully. For me, for Phil, your husband, for your friends, for your clients, and it's so wonderful to have you and your Thanks. light in my life. Thank you. Hmm. You're welcome. So I think we've I think we've gotten some good shit. Uh, there was um, one other thing that went through my head that like way back we talked yeah. about how do you stay woke? And I don't know. And I th- I think I spoke to it, but I just mm-hmm. wanted to like make sure I spoke to the idea of body awareness is a really really mm-hmm. important thing. Like, I remember when I first started meditating, like, doing body scans, I was like, this is so weird. Why does it matter what I feel in my big toe? This is so dumb. Right. And then as you move over time, I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's so much nuance in my body is telling me so much. And all of the research that's coming out and, like, somatic experiencing and, like, yoga therapy and trauma work and the body keeps the score. Like, hello, listen to your body. The body is more powerful than words Mm -hmm. sometimes at healing. So I also try to pay attention and listen to my body sensations quite a bit, which is how I try to be woke in my life. And I also mm-hmm. practice yoga, which is also one of those. I love it. And then I'm also like cringe, cringe, like, oh, I feel like such a cliche. <laughs> it is but magical. It's magical. It is magical. So being in my body. Yeah. Just because we've westernized it doesn't mean that it right? doesn't work anymore. I think it's just like sometimes when I start piling up all of the the things that are true about me and then they turn into a like mm-hmm. liberal north side white woman stereotype yeah. box I'm like oh Christ like mm-hmm. I'm like I'm going to yoga after eating my <laughs> avocado and my aeropressed coffee while listening to NPR yeah let's mm-hmm. do this podcast oh god <laughs> hate me I, Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Whatever. <laughs> I love it. And is, is there anything else that I didn't ask you that you want to share today? The only other thing that we had talked about, which I don't know how this fits and if it fits or whatever, is the idea of where the addiction field is and where it's going and where we're focusing on stuff. And I just feel very strongly about continuing to be progressive in my ideology about that and wanting therapists in the field to catch up to those things. And like having, I I personally have some pretty liberal views about drugs and like, I feel like war on drugs is incredibly Mm -hmm. damaging and ineffective and totally worthless. Right. And even just kind of Mm -hmm. some of our ways of approaching treatment historically are really ineffective. And so I'm just, Mm -hmm. excuse me, a big champion of, can we have some new ways of approaching this? And can we talk about these things and can we stop being terrified of these things? There's these strange puritanical views, I think, sometimes in our society about substances and about sex, which is a whole other 
topic. That's a whole other podcast. That's a whole other podcast for sure. But yep. I feel like they inform a lot no. of the way that policy works and it's like really ineffective and it's like addiction is its own thing. Like drugs and sex and alcohol, like they have their dangers and risks, but it's, that's not the problem. Like mm-hmm. the problem is our society, like exactly. not being connected and yes. not giving our children what they need and, and not addressing the trauma in our society on so many levels and all of this other stuff. So addiction grows from that. And so I feel like people want to chase and demonize mm-hmm. certain things and have this quote war on drugs. And then like, that's not what we need. We need a like revolution about trauma right. and connection in the world. Like that's what we need. Well, and if, you know, people listening haven't seen Johan Hari's TED Talk, Everything mm. You Know About Addiction is Wrong, Google it immediately. Um, have you seen it? I don't know. <gasps> Girl, because basically everything that you're saying right. is, is exactly what he says. And, and his book... His book, Chasing the Scream, is all about how the war on drugs has failed, and it sucks, and it's all about morality and racism instead of actually being about the truth, which is we need connection. Right. Well, and I also get being in the whole like Buddhist and mindfulness, like world of things, there's a lot of like conversations about like the historical use of like psychedelics and spiritual experiences. Mm -hmm. And there's this research about using MDMA with trauma and Mm -hmm. helping people have corrective emotional experiences. And I'm like, please, can we open up these channels? Like clearly like addiction treatment fails a lot. Yeah. A lot. You know what I mean? And like, even like trauma stuff, like our world, people are just living out there with stuff. And it's like, can we please be more progressive and like Mm -hmm. open up to these new ideas Mm-hmm. You know, people need the help. So mini soapbox on that for a little, for a minute. I dig. We're on the same soapbox. We can share it. Yay. And we'll frolic up to it and hug each other on the soapbox. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Everything can be healed with love and unicorns. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know to say fuck. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, my dear, this has been so wonderful and I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your time. I'm happy to give it. I'm sure I will have like a intense vulnerability hangover and yeah. you know, I probably won't listen to the podcast. <laughs> oh, as, as you were talking oh, though, shit. as you were talking and I was like really listening and thinking like, oh my God, she's going to love this when she hears it back. So maybe, maybe, maybe I can encourage you one day to sure. listen. Maybe this, maybe this scarred healer will be willing to look at her shit. <laughs> inviting me it's an honor and i love you i love you and i love this work we do sister amen thanks to my wonderful guest audra kurth to andrea clunder for editing liam o'donnell for taking that rad photo for the album art and to ben mueller for our theme music For more information on Audra and her practice, Chicago Mindful Psychotherapy, you can visit my website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash sarahs-blog. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Sarah Bueno. Until next time, bye-bye.